0: Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. Today's episode is from our Sunday Adult Faith Formation Forum, Purity, Gender, and the Gospel, led by Mark Gravrock. For more information on the community and ministries of St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows, you can visit our website, smlutheran.org. And now, here's Mark Gravrock with an opening song.
1: Take, oh, take me as I am. Summon outward I shall be, set your seal upon my...
2: your Father in our world. We ask you to open us to what you're about. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Carolyn is in the bells and she asked that we keep on singing this song for <laughs> maybe nine or ten times because um, they're playing for the prelude. and they, <laughs> sure, Some of them, they'll, unless they decide just to go out for coffee now, I'm not coming at all. They'll be coming in shortly. Um, I, I wanted to stop just for a moment and think again about how, where we were ending last time with, uh, with Leviathan and, uh, and God birthing the sea and all the rest of that. That might have seemed a pretty weird place to go in a study on gender, uh, on purity, gender and gospel. Um, there's nothing about gender and sexuality in those chapters of Job, except that all the animals keep having babies. I suppose their sexuality involved in that part. But it's not really addressing that at all. But what it is addressing, I hope you saw last time, is uh, God is offering a strikingly different vision for, um, for the role of chaos in God's creation, and the role of the, the boundary issues that make us nervous as part of God's creation and part of the wholeness of God's creation. And that, that image of God, say, God saying to Job, where were you when, when, um, when the sea burst forth from the womb? Mm-hmm. Whose womb? The only one around to have a womb would be God. From God's womb, that is the sea, the emblem of chaos, is God's own baby, God's own beloved child. That God now wraps in swaddling bands and set, sets boundaries for and limits and all of that, like you would with any good any good parent would do for a child. Um, but the but the, this whole piece of the creation, the chaotic stuff, the boundary stuff, is God's baby. That's a powerful word. Um, I want you to hear that and just let that resonate in you. Um, for those of us that. Um, that have been kind of more more safely traditional about our sexuality over the years. Uh, these matters might be a curiosity. They might be a, an intellectual or a spiritual struggle. And I hope for us this is opening opening boundaries and opening up the breadth of what God's about. For those of you who actually live this out, for those of you who are gay or lesbian or trans, transgendered or bisexual or whatever. Uh, Whatever, whatever variety that's not been the norm over all these centuries, um, I've heard from some of you, and I know, and as I've listened with folks, I know that it's not enough. If that's where you live and who you are, it's not enough to hear that well God forgives all of our sins. That doesn't cut it. That's not. That still leaves my identity, my very being, as sinful and broken, and not what God wants. Um this piece of Job I think has given us a bigger picture. Uh, all of those areas on the margins or the the boundaries that for us uh, that that make the world uncomfortable. God's saying my vision is greater than that, and I created my baby to be as she should be. Um, I hope you're hearing some of that in there. That this is really cracking that open right within the Old Testament. We'll be moving on, of course, further. The reason that we dwelt in all of that, of course, is from the very beginning, we saw in Paul, that Paul characterizes um, same, same gender behavior as not sin, but impurity. And that's why we've been looking at purity issues throughout this throughout these weeks together. OK. So now, from here, we're going to be going into the New Testament and see how. So how does this stuff play out in Jesus? How does it play out in Paul? Well, one more preliminary thing before we get into that. Um, John asked me last week or the week before, I forget, about more about the abomination, um, what, that, what abomination is all about, and we touched on that just briefly. Well, that got me stewing, of course, so I had to go back in and probe some more. Um, There is a handout sitting on the back table if you want it, or it's also available online if you want to get it that way. I didn't print up copies for everybody because I didn't want to spend our whole hour on that today, but it's back there if you want it. Um, It's a two-sided, more than you want to know about abomination, okay? That would be my kids saying, Dad, that's more than I wanted to know. Thank you. Thank you. so a look at the terms for, for abomination in the Old Testament and how they're used, and how they're used through, it's a purity term, and how it's used throughout the different zones of purity. And then how it morphs from purity concerns to if you get into, when you get into the Psalms and the Proverbs, it becomes an ethical term. And so using false weights and measures is an abomination to the Lord, or a lying, lying lips are an abomination. Just like purity shifts metaphorical, so does the abomination language, shift metaphorical.
1: Well, my big surprise
2: this week was
1: I realized I'd never
2: really looked in the New Testament to see how does the New Testament use the terms. The term for abomination, the Greek word in its various forms, shows up only nine times in the New Testament. This is be the bottom of the back page of that. If you pick it up. Uh, two of them in the book of Revelation, we actually stopped our Revelation reading last week just before we hit one of them. Uh, Two of them, Revelation 21, are talking about those the abominations and stuff that aren't included in God's plan and whatever. Those are the two passages, abomination ones, that are most like what we might see in Leviticus. The rest of them, most of them shift um, into the realm of idolatry and false worship. Uh, So the The majority of the the few New Testament ones are that. Um, Here, for example, is one interesting verse from Jesus, Luke 16, 15. Uh, Luke says that the, the Pharisees loved money. you remember that passage? They were lovers of money. And Jesus says to them, Luke 16, 15, you justify yourselves before people, but God knows your heart. For what is most lofty for humans is an abomination for God. Here's the only verse that Jesus ever uses for, uses abomination for human behavior. And what's he talking about? Our love of money. That's interesting. And then the other one. I don't think I'd ever seen this verse before. I don't know how I missed it. This is in Titus. Titus chapter one. Uh, Paul is writing to Titus and warning him about some of the folks in the community that are leading them astray. Titus 1, 14 through 16. He he talks about those who are leading them astray. You follow Jewish myths. I had seen that before, and I wondered if that refers to Gnostic practices or things like that, or exactly what's involved in the Jewish myths. You follow Jewish myths and commandments of human beings who turn away from the truth. And then he goes on to say this. All things are clean to those who are clean. Ever seen that in scripture before? All things are clean. Like what? All foods? All bodily flows? Contact with the dead? All? How big is all things? Are there limits to this sentence? All things are clean to those who are clean. Jesus tells us, I've already made you clean by the word that I've spoken to you. But for those who are defiled and faithless, nothing is clean. Not even the stuff that we all hold as clean and proper and in place. Instead, their hearts and consciences have become defiled. They claim to know God, but they deny God by their deeds. They are abhorrent. There's the Greek term for abomination. They are abominable and faithless and false toward every good deed. I think this is a good introduction to what's going to happen as we move into the new testament uh, it's not going to be even obviously you know there are particularly in paul passages that are going to challenge us for how we understand um, these kinds of boundary matters in sexuality and paul himself i believe is in the midst of a struggle around this around how we how to understand it and how to deal with it but here is one of a couple of pretty powerful statements from Paul. There's a similar one in Romans chapter 14. That all things are clean to those who are clean. How big is all things? What do you mean, Paul? Just talking about foods and days days of worship? Okay. Before we move into Jesus, comments, thoughts, anything you'd like to raise? If um, some of you are informed about these matters, I think, what does Jesus say about homosexuality or transgender issues or bisexuality? Nothing. Jesus says nothing about any of these matters. So does that mean he's okay with it? Arguments from silence are the worst
1: kind of thing. <laughs> you, can,
2: you can make him say anything you want to say because he does not speak to the matter. Why doesn't
1: he speak to the matter?
2: Is it it wasn't an issue at the time?
0: It's not important to him.
2: Not important to him? Well, if Jesus didn't say anything about these matters, how would you get a clue about where he might stand about these matters?
1: That's why we're in your class. That's why you're in my
2: class. And of course, I know everything. Uh, Mm Perhaps the love ethic. Perhaps the love ethic. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, there's a piece of it. Jesus focused, taking the whole of Torah, all of the law, and coalescing it into those two commandments. Love God with all your being. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so if we look at one another in our sexual beings and love one another the way we would wish to be loved, what would that say about how we treat one another? Now you can you can morph that several different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. What else? What else would you do? Mm-hmm. You said it's
1: not what's on the outside that makes you clean, but what's on the inside. It's not the external
2: stuff, it's the internal stuff. Not what comes into you from outside, but what comes out of your heart, and it probably doesn't mean blood.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. So again, that, that, change, that um, changing of purity from a physical issue to a metaphorical, spiritual issue. Okay. My basic take is, watch Jesus, watch Jesus in action. That's become really central for me. The longer I've lived in this faith, if Jesus, John tells us that Jesus is, uh, Jesus is here, a chip off the old block, here doing God, doing God for us tangibly, um, acting out God in our midst, showing us what God's all about. So, for me to watch Jesus in action, watch what he says, watch how he treats people, um, that's my best clue as to what he's about. I'll, of course, put what I want into Jesus' mind, because we do that. But watching what's there in Scripture and what he does and says is crucial.
0: I remember as a teenager looking and looking and looking for something from Jesus on that subject. Couldn't find anything, and I was so frustrated because I wanted some guidance, and I didn't seem to get any yeah. so, it is frustrating so
2: why is there nothing in there
1: why is there nothing in there like you said following what Jesus does and you think of him dealing with a woman at the
2: well or any of those outcasts uh, in that society and he's just accepting <clears throat> he's bringing people into the kingdom of God yeah. who have been excluded before. So uh, I think that's if you're looking for the thieves, those you know, the tax collectors, whoever it might be who have been on the outs he's bringing sure. them. Yeah, exactly. And one of the issues too may be that, that Jesus in his own ministry, that the people around him were not openly struggling with this question, that it wasn't or wasn't on the table at the time. Well, the woman at the
0: well, she was deep into
2: it. Yeah, she was deep into a sexual struggle of one kind or another, um, mm-hmm. not a same gender mm-hmm. one. Ah.
1: Well. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. Um, as we, there's a weird, a weird kind of time flip that happens at, at this point because. In our New Testament, we start with the Gospels, we move on to Acts, then we move on to letters of Paul, and finally, Revelation, and end the church year there, and all that stuff. Um, in terms of when things are written, the Gospels come later than Paul. Paul's letters are the earliest writings in the New Testament. And here, here for me, is a piece of that amazing, confounding partnering of God with human beings. Here, if Jesus is who he, who he says he is and who we believe he is, if he's God in the flesh, he's here doing God in our midst to show us what God's all about. And this is sort of the climax of God's project throughout the whole biblical story. Why wouldn't he write anything down? <laughs> Why didn't he write a big manual for us to say, here's here's what I'm about, here's he wrote nothing, as far as we know, except he scribbled in the ground when he was when the woman caught in adultery was there. That's the only writing we know about. Um, so here, God, Jesus, leaving it to chance, leaving it to human beings to carry on the message of Jesus and proclaim it. Now, you get the Holy Spirit injected in there. There's the fail-safe, I suppose, that, God, that the Holy Spirit is there to guide us and to lead us into all the truth. So that's a key piece of this. But the Holy Spirit seems to lead different gospel writers in different directions You get different pictures depending on who the writer is. It's a risky project. So here you've got Jesus, if he died and rose again in something like 27 or 30 AD, something like that. You've got Paul starting his ministry probably in the early 40s and going through the the early 60s. His his mature stuff around the year 50 or so. 20 years, a full 20 years after Jesus uh, died and rose again, after Jesus' ministry, is Paul writing his letters to these communities. And if you read Paul, you don't get much of anything about the the earthly Jesus. You find very little detail. You think there's one quotation of something that Jesus said, and that's about it. And then the first gospel, written another 20 years later, the fall of Jerusalem is in the year 70. Mark writes either right before or right after in the year 70. That's the first of the gospels to be written. And then the others follow later on, a couple of decades later on after that. So we're going to be looking at, we're looking here, we're looking at here, through here, today. So here you've got with these, just with the issue of purity, we'll see what Jesus says and does about purity, but we're getting it through the earliest gospel writer, Mark. Forty years after Jesus rose and left us. That's a long time. It's more than, it's a full generation and more. With time for the Christian community to struggle with these issues and Wonder what's going on, and that's why you can see in Paul, as he deals with purity issues, he'll come out in one place. The book of Acts comes out in other places. There are clashes between the Christian groups as to how to understand purity. Um, I love Mark's gospel because it's the earliest. It has my name on it, and it has, and it really focuses. Almost the whole of Mark's gospel focuses on these questions that's really focal for me okay would you turn please to uh, Mark 7 Mark chapter 7 everybody's favorite passage in Mark the tradition of the elders from Mark chapter 7 1 through 23 starts out with uh, some Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem. That, OK, some some of the agents from headquarters have come to check out Jesus. And one of their first critiques is, uh, verse 2, they noticed that some of Jesus' disciples were eating with defiled hands. That is, they weren't washing them before they ate. Now, we actually didn't run into anything about washing hands in the purity code. That was actually part of the priestly rituals for as they as they went into the temple to serve, they had to perform certain washings before they did. And part of the Pharisees' program is to take priestly purity and apply it to the whole people. And so the issue of washing hands became ritually washing before uh, by the way, it's good to wash your hands. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Just (laughs) go wash your
2: hands. My favorite Far Side cartoons was a restaurant scene, and a guy's coming out, kind of a dorky-looking guy coming out of the bathroom, and up at the top of the bathroom is a sign flashing, "Did not wash hands."
1: <laughs>
2: okay, okay. So we're, there's there obviously there are hygienic reasons for washing hands. These are purity reasons. They're eating with hands defiled, and Jesus goes on and pokes at their logic then for the next dozen verses or so. Um, before we go any further. Uh, do you know anything about the gospel of mark is this a long passage or a short one it's long mark's tendency is to write short little stories and then matthew and luke will expand on them usually when you get one in mark that's long what does that suggest to you it's important it's important 23 verses mark spends on this story of jesus right smack in the middle of the book it's a thematic passage It's important. Okay, verse 14. So he's dealt with the Pharisees and scribes, and now he turns to the crowd. Would somebody read for us, please, 14 and
1: 15?
0: Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile.
2: Thank you. So Jesus makes this public statement, and as is typically the case, his public statements are a little bit, can be a little puzzling, because he doesn't spell out what he's talking about. What do you hear in this much? You're in there, standing there in the crowd, you're part of a people that's immersed in these purity concerns, what do you hear when Jesus says this?
0: Food purity laws maybe aren't as important as they've been made out to be.
2: Food purity laws aren't as important as they're made out to be. Yeah, what you put into your mouth, what you eat and what you drink. That's a crucial piece. We saw, in fact, it was this bracketing piece in Leviticus from chapter ten, chapter eleven, and then again in chapter twenty, bracketing the whole thing as a way of saying this is an emblem of the entire purity system. Food is crucial. And it also helps separate Israel from the surrounding peoples. It helps with their identity. Well, those are crucial pieces. Yeah, what you put in your mouth isn't that crucial. It's not what comes into you from outside that defiles, but what comes out from inside. Anything else it might mean to you? He doesn't actually mention food here.
0: Well, if you think about what goes in and goes through the gut and what comes out, but then you think of what you're experiencing, what's coming into your mind, from all kinds of sources, you can have all of those come in with uh, without a problem, but it's what you do with those, and then what you spew out that can either
2: be good. It's or an bad. interesting phrasing. What you spew out, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this could be talking about experiences and other all kinds of other things besides simply food
0: what they're hearing from their teachers that that might be very mm-hmm. threatening to the teachers
2: yeah so don't listen anymore to me <laughs> i
0: take it to it's your words and deeds that
2: count it's your words and deeds because your words come out of your heart right. and once again the heart is the the organ of, in Hebrew thinking, it's the heart, it's the organ of decision making and your commitment, your life commitments and your will. Yeah, the words that come out from there will make you cleaner and clean or unclean. So stop talking.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay. He goes on, of course. Uh, and as is typically the case, the disciples don't get it, right? So Jesus makes this proclamation. Verse 17, he left the crowd and enters the house. By the way, in Mark, you can watch this house moving around with them wherever they go. <laughs> I don't know if he had an RV or what it was, but uh, the house is wherever they happen to be. It's the place where Jesus is with his with his immediate followers. So it's the private teaching. So he's in pri- privately teaching the disciples. ask him about the parable. And he says, you don't get it? Typical of Jesus too. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach, now we are talking about food, um, and goes out into the sewer? OK. There's nothing in there about what happens in the whole elementary canal, and what comes out of your intestine and goes through the rest of your body. And But he's not talking about that. It's more parable. Then Mark adds this. Thus he declared all foods clean. Now, Jesus doesn't say this part, right? It's a parenthetical phrase that Mark puts in there. Thus, Jesus declared, all food's clean. The timing now matters. This is Mark writing in the year 70 or so. Um, When Jesus said this 40 years earlier, did everybody get that now all foods are clean? No. Paul wrangles about that. The early church wrangles about that. They're all still debating that question. When Peter gets his call from... uh, from from Cornelius, and so he has this vision beforehand of this sheet let down from heaven with all these clean and unclean animals, and rise Peter, kill and eat, Lord, I've never, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. Peter is still living uh, Levitical purity, and God, the Spirit is preparing Peter for traveling north to Caesarea, entering this dirty, dirty Gentile city, defiled with idols and all the rest, to meet with a dirty, a dirty Gentile, Cornelius and has to say, I I realize now that I cannot call comments that God has cleansed. So this 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 is a matter that the church debated and wrestled with for 40 years. And Mark now, the first one to tell the story, injects this, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Well, Mark is making his observation about what he believes here. It's what comes out of a person that defiles, from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. And then at the end of this section, we get this list of 12 different terms of things. Maybe a traditional kind of list of behavior, but it's here in Jesus' speech about things that come out from our heart that um, make us unclean. Deceit, envy, slander, pride, folly, wickedness, greed, murder, theft. Um, I, I left the top one there in Greek. What does it say in your Bible?
0: Forne-
2: fornication. Fornication, yeah that you use every day Every Cal fornication that's a little different uh, What is fornication?
0: Sex between unmarried
1: people who are not committed
2: to each other Sex between unmarried people who are not committed to each other yes. okay. That, uh, that's, that's a possible, that I think has been the kind of more modern rendering of what fornication is. Right now, the catechism in eighth grade. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I just, before we go any further with this, I, I want to make you aware of three Greek terms that are common in New Testament ethical wrestlings around these matters. And porneia is one of them. Um, porneia, adultery, there's, I think we know what adultery is. Licentiousness, do you know what that is? Another word that you use all the time? Anybody have a different translation for that one? Doing
0: whatever you want. Doing whatever you want.
2: Yeah, Um, like you've got license to do anything. Okay. so these are the terms that keep showing up in Paul a lot and in other writings. Fornication, impurity, and licentiousness. There's your New Testament sexual sexual ethic, clear as (laughs) mud. Okay. Fornication, that term porneia, comes from the Greek verb to, to sell. So originally it means sex for sale, which is prostitution. Um, either the prostitute or the one who hikers the prostitute. porneia. Um, and actually the Latin term fornication, the term behind the word fornication, is also a term for prostitution initially. So actually fornication is a fairly accurate translation of the original meaning of porneia. But that's even in the New Testament is much broader than that. But for an example, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is dealing with a mess that's there in Corinth. And he says, one of the things that that I hear is going on in your community that I can't support is that uh, one right within the Christian community, there's a man who is living with his living sexually with his father's wife. Presumably not his mother, presumably a stepmother. Don't know if the father has died or is still living, but living with his So there, and he calls it porneia. He he calls the man a pornos. Um, That's not prostitution. We're back in Leviticus 18 about who you can have relationships with in the extended family and who's off limits. Okay. And there are all kinds of other passages like that too, with a really broad net. In the New Testament, this term basically means illicit sex, any form of sexual expression prohibited by God's law. You have noticed it's kind of circular. So what, what does God's law say about, what, what does the Bible say about sexual behavior? Well, you exclude the things that are excluded by God's law. Well, what are those? You know, they're the ones that are excluded. They're, it's kind of a circular. Everybody knows what those are, and nobody ever defines it. So that's the first term. Um, in many modern translations, they put sexual immorality, which is equally vague. Second term, impurity, uncleanness, akatharsia. This is any of the kinds of impurity that Leviticus addresses. In Paul, this term is almost always sexual. When you see that impurity language, Paul usually means sexual. So we're back to Leviticus again, right? Licentiousness, aselgeia. Its definition is a disregard for legal or moral restraints, particularly sexual restraints. So you're right. Anything goes. I can do whatever I want to do. Throw off all boundaries, and it's typically a sexual term. Other modern translations, lasciviousness. You use that one every day, too? No, not. Sensuality? Like flannel sheets? (laughs) Yes. What are we talking about? Shameless lust? We're getting closer. Or lewdness? That's a term that that, uh, Ezekiel used a lot, too. Like, we all know what that is, but do we? Well, the general picture is throwing off all sexual restraints. So there is your basic New Testament ethic on these matters. Uh, Just a word about pornea here. This is 1 Corinthians 15. The early Christian community is arguing about whether Gentiles can be part of the Christian faith, or do they have to become Jews in order to become Christians. And they have this church council, the first great church council. And they they think they think it through, and they study it the scripture, and listen to the Holy Spirit. And they come to this conclusion. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you Gentiles who want to be Christians no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols. There's the idolatry issue, um, but the two things that The Jewish world complained most about about the Gentile world. We'll see this again and again. Were idolatry and sexual immorality. So abstain from sacrifice to idols. Abstain from blood. What does that mean? Yeah, that whole business about making sure that when you sacrifice an animal, you pour out the blood because the blood is the life. Don't consume the blood. Abstain from what is strangled. I don't really know what that is. (laughs) None of the commentators I look at seem to know. My guess is it's probably connected with the blood, that you don't strangle the animal. You you would slit its throat and pour out the blood. Because if you just strangled it, you might be consuming blood. And abstain from pornea, sexual immorality. So this is all we ask the Gentiles of the whole Torah. This is all we're asking the Gentiles to take on as they become Christians. Stay away from idolatry severely for blood consumption, and keep your sexual ethics clean.
0: That kind of seems, that first sacrifice to idol seems, I mean, that almost sounds like don't eat the meats or, or whatever, as opposed to idolatry.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, this is another huge issue that we could spend a lot of time on, and I won't, but just in brief, here's the issue in much of the Greek world. Um, in corinth and other places where Paul served um, most people didn't eat meat on a regular basis you only eat usually usually most people couldn't afford it it just wasn't part of their regular diet but you ate meat at festival times
1: uh, uh. and
2: the meat that was usually available had come through uh, a temple to Aphrodite or to some other light, some other Greek god that it would be sacrificed there uh, some small portion of it burned on the altar the rest of it taken next door to the meat market and sold to the public. And the whole debate then for Christians who have been immersed in this idolatry, idolatry is, is it okay for us to eat that meat? Is it? Uh, will it contaminate us? Will it wreck our faith? Will it? Paul's take is, it's his meat. God's given it. You can eat it, but be careful about your neighbor's beliefs around it. Don't don't hurt them in the process. It's pretty clear that that this early Jerusalem council wasn't in that same place yet. Just stay away from it altogether. Okay. Gospel of Mark. Um, Some of you have been with me in some Gospel of Mark stuff before, uh, so this might be secondhand for you. Uh, That's okay. I keep finding more things as I come back into it. I love this gospel. Uh, The first part of the gospel Gives us Jesus as the agent of the gathering God. That takes us back to that Isaiah 56 passage where you've got the returnees from exile and the two groups that are really worried they're going to get excluded foreigners and eunuchs. When you get that marvelous verse, those verses do not let the foreigner join to the Lord and say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Do not let the eunuch say, I'm just a dry tree. Mm-hmm. Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my temple, I will give in my house and in my walls, a monument and name better than sons and daughters. We hear God, as we saw last last time, God is setting aside God's own law in Deuteronomy 23 for the sake of these eunuchs to bring them back into full fellowship in the community. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's that passage that Jesus himself quotes in Mark 12, as he cleanses the temple. Thus says the Lord, and now God gives God's self a new name. The Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. I'm convinced this is a theme passage for Mark's Gospel. It's maybe Mark's uh, sermon text. And the whole of the gospel is the sermon based on this text. Because we're going to see Jesus now as, as the agent of this God who comes to gather and to gather more than we're already gathered. So We'll watch him at work. Mark 1, verse 14, Jesus bursts onto the scene after the initial stuff about John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. And he makes his opening proclamation. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Turn around and trust this good news. Times are changing. And then, the next thing he does, first step Jesus takes after his opening proclamation is to gather some first disciples. Some fishermen, remember that story? And it's that story that I grew up hating because I will make you fishers of people. I always thought about hooks and lines, (laughs) getting hooks caught in my my cheek or something like that. What kind of fishing did they do? net fishing same nets entirely different picture I am creating you as a, as a group of pe- as a people together to be gathering people together in the net this is the gathering God at work so Jesus makes his proclamation and he gets his followers together for that gathering purpose the next thing that happens is you get a whole um, chapter and portions of two other chapters of conflict stories one after another bang, 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 just are all, Mark's gathered all these together. And each each time, Jesus is conflicting with some authority or another, some kind of boundary or another. And almost every time, not in the very first one, but in all the rest of them, there is somebody on the other side of that that line that has been excluded and kept out of the community. And so, first of all, um, he counters the scribes' teaching, uh, 21 to 34, it's uh, he, Jesus goes home to Peter's house, and there's Peter's mother-in-law, sick with a fever. Jesus heals her. Why? She's got a fever. When is it? It's the Sabbath. Don't really find that out until the even, at the evening, the whole town gathers. Why evening? Sabbath over. The whole town yeah ga- So that, that's Mark's clue. He doesn't tell it to you straight. He slides it in there that Jesus broke the Sabbath. To heal Peter's mother-in-law, so there's a line he's crossed. Uh, the priest authority—that's the story about the leper. Jesus, if you want to, you can make me clean. You can you can cleanse me. You can call me. You can call me clean. That's the priest authority back in Leviticus 13:14. And Jesus is not a priest, and he says, "I will." And he touches the man, which would, according to the purity law, makes Jesus unclean. He would now have to be out. Inside the city for a week while he goes through the cleansing rituals and all of that. Jesus touches the man, including him in the fellowship, and technically making himself unclean. Uh, crossing crossing the boundaries of priestly authority. Mm-hmm. Chapter 2, 1 through 12. That's the story of the man let down through the ceiling, the paralyzed man, and Jesus doesn't deal with his paralysis first. He forgives the man's sinned. And the scribes and Pharisees around are This guy's blaspheming. Who has authority to forgive sins but God alone? What line has Jesus crossed?
1: The line between humans and God.
2: That's what blasphemy is. He's also crossed the. you know, God God is the only one who can forgive, but God's also set up an establishment on earth that can hand out that forgiveness, and that's what the priests and the scribes and Pharisees are worried about, is that prerogative. Jesus crosses it. Says this guy free.
0: How much do you think the the priests were seeing a threat to their power versus true blasphemy on Jesus' part?
2: I, I, did you hear your question? How much could? How much was their reaction because of concern about real blasphemy, and how much was concern for their power? I suspect it's mixed. The motives are mixed all the way through, and probably mixed from person to person. I suspect there were some who really were focused on this is an offense to God. And there were others who were more focused on who does this guy think he is? Probably a mix. Um, 13 through 17, eating with social garbage is how one one commentator put it. Human beings that are social garbage. That's who Jesus goes to eat with. Um, So crossing the lines of social propriety. And class, probably. Um, The fasting issue, uh, as he raises that, there's there's no, that's kind of the focal discussion in this section in Mark. There's no particular person out there who's being hurt. The Sabbath, the disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath. It's not that they're plucking grain, that's not wrong. The law of gleaning allows it. Just that they're doing it on the Sabbath. They're harvesting on the Sabbath. Jesus says they're hungry. Okay. And then finally, the last one. It's a Sabbath day again, and here in the the synagogue is this man with a withered arm. That's not an emergency if a guy has a withered arm. He'll still have a withered arm tomorrow. Jesus could heal on Sunday instead of Saturday if he wanted to. And I wonder if this guy's a plant, If if the authorities have put him there just to see what will Jesus do. I love the passage Jesus is just really sneaky. He looks around at them, grieved at their hardness of heart. It's a pretty focal passage. And he, do you remember what Jesus actually does with the man? He doesn't do a thing. He just says, stretch your hand out. And the man stretches his hand out and it's healed. They can't pin anything on Jesus.
1: They didn't do anything.
2: And this is the end result of it. They went out and held council with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. What we're seeing in this opening section is Jesus going out as the agent of the gathering God, gathering people that have been shut out by all the lines that we have drawn. Some of them are lines of God's law. Some of them are lines of custom, Some of them are lines of authority. There are all different kinds of lines in there, biblical and not. And Jesus is crossing them all, not because he's a rebel. But because there's somebody on the other side that has been shut out and excluded from full participation, and at the end of it, the keepers of the authority are ticked as hell, and they're ready to see him dead. Later on, Mark will use the term "little ones" as Jesus' term for not weak people necessarily, but um, the the shut out, the disadvantaged. The uh, vulnerable, the excluded. Um, so it's a centerpiece of Mark's gospel. Okay, starting at the end of chapter 4, a new movement starts in Mark and it's, bound, it's surrounded by these images of sea crossings. We saw a peek at that last time when we looked at, at the sea and how Jesus is doing this chaos conf, this struggle with the, with chaos and his own actions on the sea are part of that whole picture that Jesus is showing himself in charge of the sea, which is the emblem of chaos, the emblem of all impurity. So the end of chapter 4, Jesus says to the disciples, um, the three passages that will bomb this section. There's the Sea of Galilee. I'll tip it sideways, partly because that's how the Hebrews themselves looked at things. (laughs) They faced east. That was their north orientation, but also because things fit better on the screen this way. (laughs) <laughs> There's Capernaum. There is a line that goes down between. This is where the, uh, the Jordan River comes down from the north and empties into the Sea of Galilee. Here is where it exits from the south and then heads on south down through the valley. That line, invisible line, is the line between this side and that side of the sea. It's a boundary. A line between Gentiles and Jews. A line between unclean land and clean land land between them and us. So here at the end of chapter four, Jesus says to the disciples, let's go across to the other side. If you're immersed in this stuff, if you've grown up in this, what are you hearing? What are you thinking?
0: Going to the unclean side.
2: Let's go to the unclean side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't say it in so many words, but with all, the, with all of the purity stuff that these folks are immersed in, for Jesus to say, let's go over there. No way, Lord. You know what happens next? The sea gets rough. The sea gets rough. There is a literal storm at sea, wind and waves. And at the same time, I, I'm, I'm convinced there's an inner storm that the disciples are going through. And there's Jesus sleeping on the pillow. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Lord, don't you care that we perish? And Jesus calms it down and says, "Okay, let's go. So they cross to the other side. The first place they get to is this this place where there's the man with the unclean spirit living among the tombs. It's just immersed in impurity matters. He lives among the tombs in contact with the dead. He's filled with unclean spirits. That's what Mark calls them, unclean spirits. Jesus doesn't seem phased by it all. When the when Jesus is ready to cast out the demons, where do the demons want to go? Remember, the pigs. What do you know about pigs? Unclean. Unclean, and then the pigs rush down into where? Into the sea, the very heart of uncleanness and impurity, into chaos. This is just soaking in impurity. So part of the message of this pe- of this section is. About all of the uncleanness over there among those nasty folks that Jesus is totally in charge of and not phased by in the least. Okay, I'm going to cross back to our side now. Back to the, I uh, don't know if it's exactly Capernaum, but somewhere around there where Jesus typically served. The first person he meets there is Jairus, whose daughter is dying, His 12-year-old daughter is dying. Please come help her and heal her so that she'll, leave. she'll live. Jesus is on his way there, that's so we get Jairus, his daughter, and then he encounters this woman who interrupts the flow. And if you're Jairus, you are mad as hell because your daughter's dying. Jesus, we got to get there. Here's this woman with what problem? Bleeding.
0: Average bleeding.
2: Bleeding. How long? Years. Remember this from Leviticus. Leviticus 15, um, genital flows, natural and unnatural. She's really, really impure. What does she do? Touched him. So she comes sense. up and touches, touches Jesus. What is she doing to him? To him unclean. Making him unclean. And Jesus is in face by it. touched me. He doesn't know. Um, and he claims her as daughter. Mm. Daughter. So he, he spends time on this poor woman who has spent all her money and now it's gone. This, this woman who is poor, who is totally unclean, and gives her all the time and claims her as family before he goes on to finish the, the story of Jairus' daughter. By that time, she's died. And Jesus goes in and does what? Takes the corpse by the hand. Unclean, unclean super unclean. It's one of the worst impurities there is, is to touch a corpse. Got a lot of washings you got to do after that. Little girl, wake up. And she does. And she's child. She, there's two daughters that are now this kind of interwoven new family. Of, and all of them have been unclean now. So on this one, you get the unclean back on our side. It's not just over there that everything's unclean. Things are unclean where we are, too. So after this, there's a retry, they try to go on retreat. Jesus takes the disciples away, and as you know, they, they run across a whole crowd of people there, and Jesus feeds the five thousand. After that episode is done, uh, Jesus sends the disciples back across the sea while he stays on this side to pray. He says, "I'll meet you over there." So the second great crossing. You know what happens with that one? It's where, he walks on the water. Yes. where he walks on the water. First of all, we've got another storm going. And you've got uh, Jesus staying most of the night on this side. He sees them struggling, and he waits till the last watch of the night before he starts walking over. Doesn't he care? He's sending them out on this kind of their uh, their internship or their apprenticeship. Let's go back over where to the other side, and they have another storm, and Jesus and Jesus meets them walking on the water, and do they get there? If you take Mark's geography series, no, they do not. They wind up back on our side at, Gen- at Genesaret. This is a, an attempt at um, apprenticeship and mission that has failed. And it's failed because we weren't ready to face it yet. We weren't ready to face going to the other side. Now, this is the point in chapter 7 where you get that long passage about Jesus redefining purity. And one of the things I want you to see now is that when Jesus redefines purity and counts all foods clean, he is, that's such an identity piece for who is Israel and who is not, that Jesus is erasing the boundary between God's people and those other nasty folks. And he lives it out. So as soon as he's done that, he starts traveling outside Israel, goes first up north to Tyre and Sidon, and that's where he meets the foreign woman who's got the daughter and she there's that wonderful passage over there, tete a going on. Um, then the, tra- the circuitous route traveling back over toward Bethsaida where he heals a deaf man. And then another feeding, now of 4,000. These are all in Gentile territory. So here this entire set, Jesus erases the boundary by redefining purity and now goes and ministers among the unclean, among those other people, all of them. After that, He crosses back over to our side, and the Pharisees are already in waiting. They hear what's going on. What right do you have to do this, Jesus? What authority do you have? What sign can you show us? And Jesus won't give them a sign. He just hops back in the boat with the disciples and crosses back over. Um, Another crisis then, not an outside storm, but an inside storm of the disciples not getting it and not understanding. And when they get over to Bethsaida on the other side, um, he heals one more person, Blind man and is another Gentile. What are you hearing in all this?
0: He's trying to let us know that everyone's included, not just the Jewish
2: faith community. He's trying to change history. He's trying to change the direction of where things are going. Are we changing the direction of where things are going? Inclusivity rather than exclusiveness. Yeah. I would take you back again to that Isaiah 56 passage of the eunuchs and the foreigners who were afraid and coming back. Uh, there Jesus doesn't obliterate boundaries but he changes the nature of the boundary. Instead of an external boundary, a wall around the people, he the, the new boundary is a, is a faith boundary. It's for those Gentiles and those foreigners and eunuchs who cleave to me, who follow my... Follow my word. Who observe my sabbaths which was a key issue at the time. So there's an internal cleaving to Jesus that that becomes a new kind of a new shape of boundary. So it's not that there's no difference at all, but the difference has changed as to what it is. Okay. So there's the redefining of purity again. Uh, I'm only gonna. This is the only slide I put up for Mark eight through ten. That's the way of the cross section, where Jesus three times says he's going to the cross, and three times we disciples totally blow it, and how we understand it, and three times he follows it up with, uh, with teaching about what what's the nature of this life of faith in this community that we're. I'm calling you to live out together. Um, My take on this is that we've got three major movements. The first one, where Jesus calls us to set ourselves aside. The last one, where you've got different ways in which we're trying to seek to save ourselves, whether by wealth or by um, by position or whatever, and Jesus mixes those. And in the middle, the very center of this, is the little ones, the powerless ones, the children, the women who are being cast off in divorce, all kinds of little ones, among vulnerable ones, ones that have been excluded or crushed or hurt. And Jesus sets, doesn't just help them, he sets them at the very center of the community. For the, anyone who's feeling like, well, this faith puts me way off of the margin or where I don't belong, I hope you're hearing that Jesus is putting you right smack at the center. And your gifts and everything else that goes along with who you are at the center of the community. We've got a few minutes left, um, and this was the heart of what I wanted you to see, because it's it's where what Jesus is up to and just watching him in action and how, at least as I read Mark, how Jesus lives out this gathering God tells me a great deal about how he might stand toward, toward the sexual gender kind of issues that we wrestle with today. Um, there are other ways that we can get at it, and I'll just touch on those briefly. Um, If we want to get at how might Jesus feel about same sex sexuality, for example, to look at how he handles purity. We've been doing that already. How does he handle the commandments of biblical law? What does he say about sex and sexual irregularities? How does he treat sexual offenders? Uh, What is his his ethic, his basic way of life? All of those are going to play into how we understand what Jesus is about and how we watch him. I'm going to skip over some of these. This one, first of all. How does Jesus handle purity? We've seen about foods, genital flows, leprosy, corpses and tombs, separating peoples. How does he handle all those purity matters? Freshness. Yeah. Yes. Totally changes the picture and includes these folks. Um, I just want to touch this one for a moment. With all that you've seen now and heard about purity, you're now at the Last Supper, and Jesus says this. He passes out this cup and says, this is my blood. Drink of it, all of you. Mm-hmm. If you're a Jew, how are you feeling? Pretty easy. It's gross anyway in the first place. <laughs> but unclean, supra, we are not supposed to consume blood. That's an intriguing one, isn't it? Except
0: isn't if it comes from the heart, this is truly who I am. This is your vibing who I am. And in a way I mean that's what he's saying take the essence of myself it is It I'm not going go to say
2: okay. it is it but that's a what better way to say you're consuming me that's right and with the with the heart of the of the purity law that we were looking at it's, it's issues of life and death and so the two fluids sexual fluids and blood they're the issues of life for Jesus to say this is my blood he's saying I am giving you my life I am giving you my very life drink it down way he does it is utterly scandalous for people immersed in purity. Um, Jesus supports Torah. Jesus distances himself from Torah. Jesus focuses Torah. You've mentioned this one already, the great commandments, and how he takes the whole of God's law and focuses it down to a center. Uh, His teaching on sex, we can spend more time on that. The The one I want to mention here is this one. Uh, divorce and remarriage. In Mark 10, when they question Jesus about, so where do you stand with divorce? Is it is it legal, is it is it illicit for a man to divorce his wife? Uh, that first notice, first of all, that's not Jesus' question. Somebody else brings it up. It's not one that he says, oh, I want to teach my people about divorce. No, he's being put on this on the spot. Second thing to notice is that he's being tested. And I think it's really curious that not only is that a hot issue for the Jewish world at the time, but in the place that Mark places that geographically, it's within sight of the palace where John the Baptist was put to death for this very issue. So for them to say, don't look at that palace up there, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? It's a trap. And then when you see how Jesus handles it, uh, his issue I'm convinced especially as it's woven into all the little ones in mark is that jesus is is supporting these women who are being cast off who have no no um no recourse um, the concern is for the little ones there's a piece for our sexual ethics is who are the little ones in our sexual ethics who is being harmed who is being
1: upheld mm-hmm.
0: It must have been Paul, I, I don't remember, who said if, if a divorced person marries again, it causes their new spouse to be unclean or something.
2: Actually, it's the opposite. Paul says if you, if you, if you well, his, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, in his early church where some are becoming Christians and maybe their spouse isn't one yet, mm. do you feel like you need to leave your spouse because your spouse is not a Christian and, Jesus, and Paul says, well, I don't have any word from Jesus on this, but I'll tell you what I think. And what I think is, stay together. Who knows? You're, you are the one who cleanses the family. And so any children born of this union are clean. They're not unclean uh, because of your connection with Jesus. So he's transforming the divorce issue, too, at that point. Um, we're out of time, and I don't need to go through them. you got these on your sheet at the bottom of the page about what Jesus' way of life is. But I think we've seen enough for today, at least, about what is Jesus up to? So if he never says a word about transgender or bisexuality or homosexuality, whatever, how might he respond to people today? I think if we watch Jesus' action, we'll get some clues. When we get together next week, we can return to this as you wish, and then we'll move into what more was Paul up to in all of this and how do we understand that. Thanks for today.